Hi, this is Paul Spellman. I'm uh, standing out in my uh, backyard looking out over the Brazos River down here in southeast Texas. And I'm just doing a pilot here on a podcast that I'm going to start up here pretty soon called I Have a Story About That. The idea is that um, I'm going to tell some stories having to do with the moments of history, U.S. history, maybe some local history, maybe world history, things that I teach about, things that I talk about, and then maybe after working with the event for a little while and telling you a little bit about what happened, then maybe a little side story, maybe a little trivia, something I hope might be a little entertaining. And uh, for about 25 or 30 minutes, just uh, share some stories about that particular event. My hope is that uh, you'll enjoy the stories. You'll learn a little bit about some uh, moment or event or person in history and a little bit of trivia maybe to share with your friends. So I hope you enjoy it, and um, we'll see how that's going to go as we work along uh, in the midst of all of this. Let's see how this is going. Let me just give you a, a story here just to give you an idea what this is going to be like from week to week. I'm hoping to do about a 30-minute chapter each week. In this particular case, this is a little bit of U.S. and world and Texas history all kind of rolled into one. The story goes back to the late 1600s. In 1689, a Spanish soldier named Alonso de Leon was traveling up into Texas with an expedition searching for the remnants of the Frenchman La Salle's uh, mistaken misadventure, which had resulted in La Salle's death uh, by some mutineers in his group. And the Spanish didn't want the French anywhere near uh, this part of their provinces of New Spain. So they sent de Leon up there to search for any survivors of the French, and he didn't find any. And he made his way up into East Texas uh, looking, and uh, once he'd gotten up as far as the Sabine River, almost into what would be uh, Louisiana, French Louisiana, he turned back. And on the way back on the expedition, de Leon decided to take the opportunity to map the areas that he had just crisscrossed uh, through East Texas. And so with his cartographer there, they carefully sketched and uh, figured out the mileage and the, um, the, the rivers as they crossed them. And they began to name them as they went along, the Neches and the San Jacinto and so on. And they came to a river that was, uh, had a lot of red soil to it, and so they named it the Colorado. And the other river that they came across, they named the Brazos, the Arms of God. And they returned finally to San Antonio and back to Mexico City. Some years later, another cartographer in Mexico City was copying some of de Leon's maps along with others for future exploration and trade up into that part of what was now being called the province of Tejas. Inadvertently, this cartographer swapped the names of the Colorado and the Brazos on the map that he drew. And ever since, to this day, 300 years later, the Colorado River and the Brazos River have had their original names switched. And that has caused a lot of other adventures along the way. But in this case, just a little side story about uh, how mistakes can be made and carried on for centuries thereafter. In a later chapter, somewhere down the way, I'll come back to this story and talk a little bit more about the Brazos River and about Spanish exploration and about colonists who got very, very confused. 
Well, there you go. That's an example of what I'm going to be doing. I'll give a little bit more background to some of the historical stories that I tell. And some of my stories are a little bit longer, most of them. A few of them are a little bit shorter, might include two or three as they're related together. But somewhere along the way, I hope you'll get the idea of what I'm working on. And I hope you like it. And if you do, I hope you'll stay tuned. And um, you can look it up through my name, Paul Spellman, or you can look it up through this particular podcast, I have a story about that. Okay, so that's the little short story. Now um, let's take a trip. Let's um, let's leave the Brazos River and uh, let's head down uh, South Texas and uh, find out a little bit more about LaSalle, the Frenchman, and his uh, misadventures and ill-fated trip uh, into Texas. Now to do that, we're going to um, take a little road trip here. We're going to start in West Columbia, West Columbia is some miles uh, south of Houston, and we're going to uh, go through the intersection there of uh, Highway 36, which is uh, headed down to the coast, and Highway 35, which is headed southwest along the coast. It's going to run parallel uh, to the uh, Gulf Coast, and we're going to drive on uh, Highway 35 here for about an hour. It's a pretty drive. It's a pretty road. This is a state Highway 35, not the interstate. And so it's a little bit um, more narrow and a little bit less traffic. And it's pretty area down here. We're going to go through some uh, prairie land. We're going to go through some coastal plains. Occasionally we'll look off to our left, to the east, and see uh, the hint of some sand dunes. Maybe even a glimpse of the coast every now and then. Uh, Before we leave West Columbia, there's a little uh, town... That's all just a few miles up the other way called Pledger. Somewhere down the way, I'll tell you a story about Pledger. Right now, it's a pretty small little town of just about, oh, 20 or 30 homes. But once upon a time, it had a pretty nice little story to it in getting started. But not today. Today, we're going to head on down 35. So we're going to make our way along for a while. We're going to um, come through uh, Bay City. And Bay City is a pretty nice-sized town. As we get to uh, Bay City... Uh, we'll actually find a pretty uh, hefty population there. Nice town, good folks there, uh, pretty good eating places there as well. If you ever get down to this area here where we are in uh, Bay City, I think you'll enjoy it. It's um, uh, got a lot going for it, and it's just a pretty little, clean little, nice little town, friendly folks in Bay City. Okay, we're going to keep driving on a little bit ways, and um, about another 10 or 15 miles, uh, Highway 35 uh, juts off down to due south. And so we're going to kind of hang a pretty sharp left here and make our way uh, straight to the coast. And again, we're out in some wide open flat plains, uh, depending on what time of year it is. There might be some uh, grain in the field, some cotton out there, and pretty wide open farm country. Beautiful wildlife out in this area, birds of all sorts and kinds flying overhead. Uh, it's uh, very nice. We're not too very far from the Aransas Wildlife Refuge. If we had traveled a little bit farther down the coast, uh, we would be able to spend some time there. But that's not quite where we're going today. Today we're actually headed to the town of Palacios. And we'll arrive with uh, at Palacios there, uh, just on the uh, edge of Tres Palacios Bay. Now, Tres Palacios Bay is actually part of the larger Matagorda Bay area. Matagorda Island is one of the barrier islands that's out there. We could get out there and walk the beach 
along Matagorda Island. Great fishing here, lots of special fishing holes up and down the, um, the intercoastal canal area along Matagorda Bay. But uh, we're going to stop here in Palacios and look out over Trace Palacios Bay, a little back bay. Uh, it was named uh, probably after one of the early Spanish governors uh, of, um, of Texas, uh, Jose Felix uh, Tres Palacios. Tres Palacios means three palaces in Spanish. Uh, there are some stories that indicate maybe that some survivors of a shipwreck somewhere along the way uh, looked up as they were sort of hallucinating on the coast and claimed to have seen uh, three palaces uh, standing there waiting them. Um, that's a nice story. I think more likely that because this little area was settled around the 1830s, that was about a decade after Tres Palacios uh, was the governor. So that's my guess is how the name came to be. At any rate, as we look out over this part of uh, Matagorda Bay, it's a pretty shallow bay. It's, um, uh, it flows out and widens as it finally uh, becomes part of the canal and then out into the gulf. As we look on it, it's also fairly shallow. Uh, even out in the uh, middle of uh, this part of Matagorda Bay, it's probably not more than 15 or 20 feet deep most of the time. A lot of silt and mud at the bottom. Uh, not great for swimming, but pretty good for fishing. And especially if you're going to sail on out into the Gulf or make your way out. There's a lot of shrimp boats in this area. Uh, shrimping's a big part of the economy here in the little town of Palacios. If we looked all the way across uh, the bay, if we could see those several miles across uh, Matagorda Bay and this part, this uh, back part called Tris Palacios, we'd be able to see the town of Port O'Connor. Port O'Connor is right there on the coast and it's part of Calhoun County. If you were to drive around Matagorda Bay, you would make your way finally uh, down the little State Road 316, and that would get you there to Port O'Connor, nice little friendly town as well, where fishing and shrimping is a big part of their economy. Just up from Port O'Connor, uh, there's a small little spot in the road where there used to be a town called Indianola. Not much left there anymore, historical marker or two, uh, once upon a time, Indianola was quite the um, uh, port of entry for Texas way back in the early and uh, mid-19th century. And a lot of travelers coming to Texas from really all parts of the world would often make their way to Indianola and then inland from there, going to places like Victoria or San Antonio and so on. But a hurricane took Indianola and scattered it all over the southwestern part of the United States once upon a time, and Indianola never really rebuilt after that. It was totally destroyed uh, by the hurricane. And then other ports of entry, like farther up at um, Galveston or down at Corpus Christi, began to replace it as, uh, as places where uh, immigrant families uh, would come or Texas families uh, would leave. So we've got Palacios up here on the northeast side of the bay. We've got uh, Port O'Connor down at the southern tip of the bay. And then right up from Indianola, an even smaller spot on the road, on some maps is called La Salle. 
And that's where our story now picks up because right there out in the middle of that bay is where our story finds LaSalle and his ship LaBelle floundering in the midst of a tropical storm. I'm going to reach back again, back to the 1680s. The French had by this time uh, well settled all parts of eastern Canada, the cities of Quebec and Montreal. From the early 1600s, the French had made their way across uh, that part of Canada, ultimately to the Great Lakes. Their explorers like Marquette and Joliet explored past the Great Lakes and came to the very upper regions of a small little riverway heading south that became the fabulous and awesome Mississippi River and Mississippi River Valley. In the 1680s, Robert Sour de La Salle, a wealthy young merchant from France, came to Canada to make his fortune in the fur trade business, which he did. But also an adventurer on the side, he explored where Marquette and Joliet had been only a few years earlier, found his way to the Mississippi, and with a small expedition, uh, made his way down the Mississippi, the first European to really explore and map and claim that area for a European nation planting the flag every once in a while in honor of King Louis and naming the area Louisiana, at one point reaching almost to the delta and the mouth of the Mississippi River. In 1684, he returned to France to the accolades of the king, praising him for what he had done, what he had explored, what he had claimed, the entire central part, actually, of North America as part of French territory. And the king... And, they, and LaSalle agreed that LaSalle would return one more time uh, to the New World. This time, he would take four ships with sailors and soldiers and engineers and settlers, and they would make their way directly to the mouth of the Mississippi. In this case, they would go down across the Atlantic, swing around the southern tip of Spanish Florida, and into the perilous waters of the Gulf of Mexico, combing with Spanish galleons and warships. And with great bravery and courage, uh, La Salle uh, bragged that he would take those four ships. They would sail along the coast to the very mouth of the Mississippi itself. There they would plant the French flag, build a fort, and name it after their beloved king. Uh, with a great send-off then, uh, off went La Salle, and his uh, expedition. They made it across the Atlantic, around the uh, tip of Florida, and along the coast of what is today uh, parts of the panhandle of Florida, Alabama, Mississippi. In the midst of all of that, they sailed right past the mouth of the Mississippi River. It's kind of hard to believe unless you're out there in a vessel looking back on it, and I suppose with all of the delta and swampland, I guess it would be possible that you could um, mistake that for just some swamp and bayou land and not actually the mouth of the great Mississippi River. Whatever, maybe there were storms involved, maybe there were other uh, conditions along the way, but La Salle and his ships sailed right by. They soon were approached by and beaten back and around the Gulf by storms of one sort or another. One of the ships was lost. 
one of the ships returned and tried to head back to Canada. But LaSalle's ship, the Bell, and another continued on along the coast. Now they had bypassed the, um, the Mississippi. They didn't know it, of course, but now they were actually making their way along the coast of what would later be uh, Texas, past Galveston Island, down across what would later become Matagorda Island, Padre Island. And again, storms ravaged the two ships, one of them sinking out in the Gulf, and the second one, La Labelle, now foundering in a bay and sinking to the bottom. The survivors, a few left from this great expedition, managed to make their way onto land and in shock now looked around wondering where they were. I think LaSalle's uh, ego kind of took over at this point. He had a large one, and uh, once they had all dusted themselves off and accounted uh, for any survivors in the area, he announced with some pride that Providence or God had actually delivered them to the very place that he was headed originally, that they were very close to the actual mouth of the Mississippi, which for all of the sailors and survivors knew was true, and LaSalle assured them that it was. But of course, they were hundreds of miles now, west and uh, south of the Mississippi River Valley. They were indeed lost. But that wasn't going to get LaSalle down, and so uh, he proceeded to uh, carry on, just as the plan had been uh, made up at the beginning. Uh, they built a little fort, named it Fort St. Louis, uh, took the ragged flag off of the uh, what had been left of part of the wreckage of the ship, and flew the French flag above Fort St. Louis. As time passed, it became pretty evident, I would guess, to most of the survivors, that they weren't, in fact, anywhere close to the Mississippi River, that they were, in fact, lost and abandoned in an unknown land, only guessing correctly that they were probably too dangerously close to Spanish land of Mexico. And they were. But LaSalle pressed on, continuing to encourage and persuade that this was exactly where they needed to be. As the crew and the survivors became more and more restless, one day LaSalle gathered them together and made an astounding announcement. He said, Some of us are now going to walk back to Canada. Now, as outrageous as that sounded, from LaSalle's point of view, he knew he was lost, but he also knew that he was west of the Mississippi River Valley, where he had been at least once before, and that if he began to travel a little east and a little north, somewhere along the way, he was going to come to the Mississippi. And once he did, he would recognize where he was, and then he would move northward along the banks of the Mississippi. He knew there were Native American Indian villages along the way where he had been once before. Some of them were even speaking French at this point. They would help him get to Lake Michigan, where there would certainly be French trading vessels available for him to make his way back ultimately to Quebec. And there in Quebec, file his report, tell his great story, and presumably send a rescue ship back down into the Gulf for any survivors who had been left behind to secure Fort St. Louis. It seemed a crazy plan, and if his crew had had any idea that they were talking about nearly 3,000 miles 
from where they were to the city of Quebec. Uh, they might have mutinied even earlier than they actually did. But he left some men there, and the rest of them, about not quite two dozen, uh, under LaSalle's leadership, now began to uh, move north and east away from the coast. As they made their way along, uh, clearly there was no great river. They crossed a couple of small ones. That couldn't be the Mississippi. More and more of his crew became suspicious until ultimately they decided, a number of them, that they would mutiny, that they would kill LaSalle and make their way back to the fort. One morning then, in 1687, when LaSalle was uh, off hunting, as he returned to the camp, one of his men shot and killed LaSalle and buried him right where he had been shot. The rest of the story is remarkable unto itself because we know this story and we know this report. Some of the men launched an expedition back towards the fort. We don't know what happened to them. If they made it back to the fort, they would be killed with the others by roaming Karankawa Indians or later the Spanish. But several decided to continue on this arduous journey, an impossible trip, and they made their way north and east and north and east until they came to the Mississippi River. They went up the north the banks. They came to a Native American Indian village who helped them to get to Lake Michigan where they boarded a French trading vessel and ended up in Quebec with this outrageous, impossible, marvelous story about what had happened to them and to La Salle and to the expedition. Okay, let me stop for a minute in the middle of all this. Um, this is a pilot after all, and so I hope you're still listening. I just uh, want to make sure you're still with me, that this is making some sense, that it's uh, halfway interesting to you. I've got a lot of work to do to put all these together. But, uh, you know, if at the end of this uh, you'd like to review it, I hope you'll give it a good review. But I'm always happy to uh, get any kind of input as to some, um, you know, any other kind of advice or counsel you might have to make it more interesting or more smooth. Again, I've got a lot of editing work to do, but I just wanted to pause here before I finish the story just to let you know that, again, I really value your response on this so that uh, as we go down the way together, I can make this even more uh, interesting and uh, a little bit more aligned to the audience that I may be able to get here. So uh, we'll get back to the story here in just a second. So let's see, we left off with uh, Pierre Talon, one of the last survivors of the LaSalle expedition, making his way incredibly from South Texas to Canada in 1689 and 1690 and telling this remarkable story of the demise of LaSalle and his expedition. So sh the, the rest of that story is that um, uh, following that, a, a ship, a French ship, was then sent down into the Gulf to try to locate uh, the fort that had been built by LaSalle. Uh, they actually found it, but what was left of it? It had been totally destroyed. Stone upon stone had been taken apart. There seemed to be some um, remains there of what looked like perhaps an Indian attack, but as they learned later, the Spanish had also gotten wind that uh, this situation was uh, going on up in Texas, that there were perhaps some French involved there, 
and Alonso de Leon uh, brought an expedition uh, up into Texas to hunt down any uh, French who might be there. His uh, expedition came across the fort and what was left of it, apparently the Karankawa had in fact attacked and killed or hauled off any of the French survivors. And so de Leon ordered the rest of that fort uh, taken apart and, uh, and destroyed. He then marched his expedition about 300 miles north all the way to the Sabine River in what is today northeast Texas looking for any survivors of the French expedition which he did not find. Returning back then to uh, across Texas and back into Mexico, uh, as we said at the very beginning in the little short uh, startup to this, de Leon mapped the rivers and the uh, geography of what later became East and Southeast Texas, naming the rivers as he went along uh, in a very accurate sketching that later became a very helpful map uh, for future expeditions along the way. And to finish that story, then some years later in the early 1700s, when a Mexican cartographer was copying de Leon's maps for future expeditions, uh, he actually uh, switched the names of the Colorado River and the Brazos River from their original positions on de Leon's map. And to this day, 300 years later, the Colorado River and the Brazos River bear the incorrect names from the, uh, the origins of that story. Flash forward to the 1990s and the discovery of LaSalle's ship in the mud and silt at the bottom of Matagorda Bay. The LaBelle was found there and a marvelous several-year uh, excavation, if you will, of the bell from the bottom of Matagorda Bay commenced. It was a great story all into itself. A couple of books have been written about it, picture books showing the process. They built a coffer dam around the site, emptied and dried it out, and then removed what was left of the bell uh, piece by piece, uh, remnant by remnant, artifact by artifact, an absolutely fabulous story all by itself. And today uh, it has been reproduced and reconstructed and sits at the Bullock Museum in Austin for everyone to view with the story behind it and around it. It's a great, great uh, piece and uh, certainly worth your visit uh, next time you're in, uh, in Austin. In a later episode... I will tell a story of an ill-fated ship called the Lively, who in the 1820s uh, left New Orleans and headed for their destination, which was the mouth of the Colorado River, where they were going to meet others from that expedition, getting ready to colonize that part of Texas. Instead, they found themselves at the mouth of the Brazos River, having no idea one from the other, thinking they were on the Colorado, then their misadventure continued as they were lost for weeks and weeks at a time, the other party looking for them on the Colorado while they were actually on the Brazos River. And sort of the irony of the story in the long run is that, um, you know, you can switch the names of those rivers. Maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong. Uh, however you look at it, uh, that's another story that we'll tell sometime in another episode. Well, 
uh, kind of wraps up what I wanted to talk about today, just to kind of get this thing started. And uh, again, I'll have a little ending here that uh, we'll add on, and maybe we'll work somewhere down the way on some music at the beginning and the end, a little intro that you'll recognize. And as we work on it together, uh, we'll look forward to more stories uh, that we have to share about the events uh, in history. Thank you for listening. My name is Paul Spellman, and this has been the pilot episode of I Have a Story About That. <laughs>